Hello and welcome to episode one of The Podcoast. I'm Alex Graham. The Podcoast is going to be a place where you can hear interviews with some really interesting podcast creators, learn a bit more about what goes into a hit podcast and hopefully hear some behind the scenes stories. So I'm joined today by Cara McGugan. Cara has created a podcast for The Telegraph called Bed of Lies and it's been an absolute pleasure listening to Bed of Lies over the last few weeks. Hi Cara, thank you so much for joining me. Hi Alex, thank you for having me and choosing to talk about Bed of Lies. So as I just mentioned, you currently work for The Telegraph. Would you mind explaining a little bit about your current role there, sort of what you do for The Telegraph day to day? Yeah, sure. Um, So I'm a feature writer at The Telegraph. I've actually just passed my five-year anniversary of working there last week, I think it was, which is quite crazy. Congratulations. Thank Thank you. I started there on the tech desk as a reporter and then moved across to features about three and a half years ago. And that's on the daily features desk and weekend, but the sort of newsy features so interviewing a lot of people that are in the spotlight any given week and it can be anything from de-radicalization to criminal cases and then to quite lifestyle focused things as well but I really wanted to get stuck into a story in more detail and I've been wanting to do a podcast for a while so yeah managed to build on a story that I'd already worked on four features which I wrote up for the news section um, with Bed of Lies and which has been great. So quite a broad quite a broad range of things and I guess you cover yeah, it seems like you cover everything. Yeah, well, I guess for last year, it's been a lot of corona um, yes, of and <laughs> corona-related stories. But before that, yeah, and it can be really broad, like one day going to Northern Ireland to report on cannabis legalisation and then the next covering a health-related story. So I guess as I kind of mentioned to you in our sort of preamble chat before we started recording, I'd love to spend the first half of this talking about Bed of Lies specifically and then in the second half sort of more I guess dive into you as a creator and as a producer perhaps for the first time and and what you're into as a listener and kind of where it started for you and what led to Bed of Lies initially. So would you mind sort of starting off to give us a brief explainer all about what what Bed of Lies is, is all about. And just so as a warning, we are going to spoil a few things here. So if you haven't yet listened, please, you know, go and find Bed of Lies and listen first before carrying on. But yeah, if you could give us a synopsis and what it's all about, that would be great. Okay. So Bed of Lies follows the story of seven women who discovered over the last 15 to 10 years that their ex-boyfriends were actually undercover police officers who had been sent to spy on them and the movements that they were a part of. And we follow these women from the very start of their relationships through falling in love, moving in with each other, to then having suspicions about who these men are and why they're in their lives, and then to eventually uncovering the fact that they were actually there to spy on them. So about a decade ago, the story broke that um, one of these officers had been living long term for about seven years undercover, and he'd had a girlfriend through that whole time. But outside of work, he also had a wife and children. And it became this national scandal. And last year was the start of the undercover policing inquiry. And what I wanted to do was tell the story behind the inquiry and show the full scale and how many women had been affected by it. And we thought that a podcast was the best way to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that definitely comes across. You and I were just sharing our sort of love of the narrative journalistic podcast style before we started recording. And and yeah, I think this story is perfectly told on, on podcast. So I just wanted to ask you, I guess, about your choice of using many characters so quickly, almost right from the beginning. For me, I guess in episode one, starting off at the very beginning, I found it a bit of a challenge, I suppose. There was a lot of names flying in, a lot of information. Although you don't 
sort of spoil what's happening initially that you know you, we get introduced to all these ladies quite quickly did you and, and you did a fantastic job may, may i say just sort of explaining that all throughout the podcast it was a, a great constant reminder i think did you worry about it getting confusing for the listener was that something that you and the team that made the podcast were aware of at all yeah so it's something that i talked about constantly with the producer sarah peters from tuning fork productions we were concerned that it was a lot of names, a lot of voices, and some of the women sound very similar. Some of the names are the same. You've got multiple marks, for example, which on the first draft of episode one, um, a friend who works in audio read it through and she said, oh, so is, are all these people the same guy, this one mark? And I was like, oh, no, no. Okay, we need to make that clearer. So it definitely was a challenge. But I think the way we decided to do it in bringing all these voices in, I think was the way it had to be done, really, because we wanted to show the scale and how systematic it was. One For me, one of the biggest parts of the scandal is just how widespread it was. Almost every officer, you know, had a relationship and they went on for years and a lot of women were manipulated and I think you only really understand that by hearing all the stories alongside one another so I, yeah I do appreciate it it's a bit confusing but I was hopefully that we hoping that we'd pulled them all out in each individual ways so that you could then follow the different stories yeah definitely like I say I think episode one was a lot of information very quickly but you do a very good job of using sort of almost I guess code names for each person especially the men as like describers to remember who they are and personally I found that you know so useful <laughs> because it does get quite confusing like you say there's multiple marks uh, but having those sort of explainers behind each one does help you remember what story they're part of especially with you know sort of seven of them going on throughout and then later it dives into more uh, sort of less detailed stories I guess yeah and we we chose signifying nickname for each guy so you had like mark the climber and then mark with the scraggy ponytail but funnily what isn't really in there is actually that a lot of these men had the same nicknames within their groups so quite a lot of them were called like mark with the van and andy van which we couldn't really use but interesting overlaps between how each of them were treated um in the groups they were spying on oh really interesting so i found obviously that i read the synopsis of the podcast before listening i guess kind of as most people will do just to sort of see what's going on and kind of spoil the surprise i guess uh, even before listening and i knew nothing about this story before listening at all like I was completely unaware of the story from 10 years ago and the inquiry starting sort of in the more present day but it's the surprise behind it that's kind of so gripping and especially in the first few episodes I think maybe the first three or four that's what's building the tension and it you don't kind of really reveal the true nature of of the guys involved it's kind of only hinted uh, it's all very sort of true crime-esque I guess did you toy with ways of hiding what the hook was of the podcast for those that that didn't know anything about it. I guess it's quite a hard thing to promote without explaining, you know, what the podcast is about. Even explaining what the synopsis is to me for this podcast is quite difficult without spoiling it. But in in many ways, I guess the what's you know what's hidden is kind of the best bit. Yeah. So I think that's something that we sort of trod a constant line over. This idea that some people will know this story very well already, and others won't have heard of it at all. And in wanting to keep listeners going through to the next episode to find out sort of what the twist is going to be, but without doing it in a gratuitous way that kind of sensationalizing the story. So the way we decided to do it was in the podcast itself, tell the story as the women discovered it. So you feel with them 
the suspicion and the doubt and then the process of hunting and then the sadness when they get the revelation and the shock. So I think that was the way we decided in the podcast itself, we will get each twist and turn as the women themselves discover it. But outside of the podcast with accompanying features and I wrote a lot of pieces for The Telegraph in the paper and all of those we decided to just be upfront with the fact this was about the undercover policing scandal because it is a story that's out there and has been told in many different ways already. Yeah, absolutely. And, and when I was explaining it or telling you know friends and family about it, a few people that I spoke to knew what I was going to say, I guess, almost before... I was going to say it, they immediately knew it was about, you know, undercover police officers, whereas some people I've explained it to have, you know, are completely unaware. So, yeah, I think it definitely treads that, that fine line, but I think it does a good job for sure, especially those first five episodes. I was really kind of hooked and I figured it out, I guess, quite early. Like it, it's not particularly hidden. Um, and I think if you've got a good, you know, good common sense and a good sense for these things, you can figure it out yourself quite quickly with without much more but I think it definitely treads that line well we also wanted to be careful to make sure that it didn't make it seem like it was very obvious to the women all along that that's what their boyfriends were up to because when you're in that situation and you're in love with someone and they're sharing your bed and living with you for five years it is definitely not obvious that they're an undercover police officer so I think it was also about kind of showing yeah we didn't want to make it too obvious that that's what the what it was going to be when you got to the revelation. And so if we could, I guess, dive into before you started making all of this, if you could explain to us, I guess, what sort of, as a producer and as a creator, what sort of prep work did you put into a project of this size to begin with? I guess, how long were you working on the initial idea? You say you've, you know, you wrote pieces and you'd covered it in the past, but as a podcast, how long did you put into it before you even started recording? Could you sort of talk us through the initial idea creation? Yeah, sure. So for this one in particular, but I guess it's the case for a lot of podcasts, a big part of the process was earning the trust of the characters and deciding who we were going to focus on and talking to them, meeting them, getting their buy-in for the project as much as the telegraphs. You know, they had to bear a lot about their lives and put a lot of time into it. So we wanted to make sure that they were all on board with it from the beginning. So that involved things like going to a conference where the women, a couple of the women were speaking on a Saturday in November a couple of years ago. It was actually my birthday weekend. Um, but I was like, I want to show them that I'm dedicated to telling their story. So it's just part of the process of lining everything up. And then after that, we got... The podcast was commissioned in January last year and we were, we'd started development. We were sketching out the different stories we might tell, researching what had been written about each woman so far and the officers and doing a rough episode structure. But that did actually change a fair bit when we started reporting. And then it was just about going and doing the interviews, but it all got a bit thrown up in the air because of covid so we started recording in february and then covid happened and we stopped recording for a couple of months and then picked up again remotely i don't know if i've actually answered your question there though <laughs> <laughs> no no definitely I, i'm just i guess curious because i suppose your podcast as a narrative sort of journalistic piece as far as i'm you know, I don't follow everything super closely in the in the sort of wider podcast industry but yours is definitely one of the very few you know, long form narrative pieces that's been created, I, I imagine, almost entirely remotely. I guess you've got your team at The Telegraph, but I would assume most of you are working from home and all the ladies would have in the story would have been working from home. Well, we're not, not working from home, but recording from home rather to begin with. So, yeah, I suppose it's quite an interesting sort of case study as to what can be done in podcasting remotely. So 
If we look at the more production-focused bits of Bed of Lies, obviously the sort of story was yours to craft as a journalist and, and you were telling the story. How much involvement do you have across sort of the other areas of production, like, I don't know, music, for example? How much involvement do you have in that sort of thing at The Telegraph? So that was... I worked really closely throughout with Sarah, the producer. We were sort of talking for all day, every day, most days. We actually only ended up meeting up in person about twice over the course of production, but we were speaking all the time. And she did the more technical side, the music, editing, and then the the sort of, the more creative elements, like the spooling back that you hear at the beginning of episode five and the montages where you overlap the women's voices. But those were all creative decisions that we made together. Sort of, I was writing the scripts and giving suggestions and then she was feeding back as well. So we were both part of the process. But yeah, she did a great job of picking all the music and we were both very... We both really wanted to pick the right music and music that you associated with the podcast and then when people heard it, they would think, oh yes, that's that podcast. Because I think that's something that really sticks with you from all the good podcasts I've listened to. It's the soundtrack that goes with those podcasts yeah definitely and that's kind of I suppose stolen my next question was on the soundtrack there's you know as you've just said a few really select pieces of music throughout that work extremely well with the story they really stand out and so that's something that you always wanted to sort of focus on I guess being recognizable from the beginning yeah so Sarah spent a lot of time going through audio libraries and then when she found one that she thought would work best she would share it with me all excited and be like okay I've got it and share a little cut (laughs) cut with cut with me and I mean yeah I don't think there were any occasions where I disagreed I think the music selection worked really well so was it all found on another question on the soundtrack was it all found from pre-existing music libraries or did you commission and and sort of create any original music for it no it was all from libraries for this series it would be a dream to be able to commission our own music but I think in terms of the budget available and the Telegraph had subscriptions to these music libraries so that's what we went with. No that makes sense and so you've already also mentioned you've created Cara's notebook on the on the Telegraph website which is kind of used as a companion to the podcast on the website itself it's kind of behind the paywall but you can access it with the free trial the Telegraph offers. I guess a lot of producers always question how how useful something like that is and and if as a producer you should even bother creating that additional material to sort of surround your audio to provide that deeper experience do you think that was something that was worthwhile putting out there to begin with you know was it was it a well used a well used website from what you can tell i haven't actually looked at the stats on it so i'm not entirely sure off the top of my head how well read it was but i think we did get quite a lot of listens came through through Cara's notebook and some of the features on the website as well. I guess given that we're a a newspaper first, the written features were a very very valuable resource in terms of showing that the subscribers that we had this podcast out there and also feeding subscribers, uh, feeding listeners back to the Telegraph and our coverage as well. So I guess we've always got to be thinking of that business model of getting people to the Telegraph site. I think those resources do add because especially as you say with the men it can get confusing of who each person is so I think especially the early notebooks when you have a picture of each character as they're introduced I think that's invaluable for listeners that they can go and see that but without having to go and read read each feature and google around the different men I think I wanted to do more and I originally 
bit off more than I could chew and I have planned interactive timelines and separate features every week and things and then as you're you in the crunch point of putting together the episodes you realize you're not gonna be able to do anywhere near as much and nor is it necessarily valuable so I did scale back how much I was doing but we had the notebook and then I also had a series of features that went with it and some of those were performed incredibly well online so I think shows that there was a lot of wider interest in the topic as well I guess in many ways it was almost a double-edged sword for you in the end because the podcast did you know very well in its own right and became you know quite well publicized on on the various podcast apps but also you've got the engine of the telegraph model behind it that's pushing content from the other side so yeah I guess it's in that fortunate position that it can feed people in from both angles in the end yeah and I guess that's where newspapers producing podcasts can that's where they can make their mark because they do have this platform where they can publish more material not necessarily for bed of lies but i know for one of the telegraph's other podcast series people that come to listen to that have never listened to a podcast before but they read something about it in the paper and then they're desperate to go and listen so we've got we've actually got guides on like how you can download an app and listen to a podcast for the first time so i think it does give you access to a wider audience having the newspaper behind you as well that's such a funny thought really isn't it that the sort of the most modern medium that we've got at the moment being podcasts for sort of widespread news or or stories is being fueled by kind of you know the forefather of media the newspaper Uh, i guess it's online mostly now but the model behind it is is one of the oldest around it's kind of interesting to see the oldest feeding into the newest quite easily yeah definitely it's a slight difference between someone like the bbc or itv doing a podcast versus us as a newspaper not a traditional broadcaster thinking about what stories we should be telling in podcasts compared to the bbc and where what we're best placed to tell as well yeah absolutely and so back into the story i suppose for me episode five i felt was was the most compelling that was the sort of the episode that I really realized I was hooked on on what you had made I think it was crazy to see in that episode the story from the other perspective after you know you spent four other episodes getting so invested uh, within the woman's lives throughout the episode I suppose it's kind of clear from from their tone and from what you're telling us that the whole atmosphere there is very I guess misogynistic I'm not sure if you even use that term within the podcast but me taking away from it it feels misogynistic and I guess what's kind of most telling is you know the term wary uh, that's used to describe the ladies and the group that they're involved in were you shocked hearing these things kind of after what they're doing initially is so shocking to not only are they you know spying on people and getting deeply involved in their personal lives but then they're kind of taking it like it's all a bit of a joke it's a bit of fun they're not really taking any of it too seriously was that shocking for you yeah I think that tradecraft manual is a really shocking read and we knew that we wanted to pull back and and flip to the police side for that episode but we were originally going to focus more on Neil Woods and David Tucker and just bring in a small bit of the tradecraft manual but as we read it the producer and I we were just we were sending each other clips of it being like oh my god see this bit and I think having heard all those women's stories and then reading it and this document is you know pages and pages long and it was published I can't remember what was a few years ago now I think in 2018 or so but snippets before then so it has been out there but the thing is if you're no regular person is going to go and read this whole document and no news story can ever really do it justice for how much 
is in there and how many different kind of condescending lines there are. So we decided that actually the, we were just going to have to use big chunks of it and get our crime correspondent Martin Evans to read read them for us because I think it was really right that that document led that episode. So we actually, after reading it, Amber being so shocked by it, we decided that we would change the structure of that episode and let that guide us through it. Yeah, I definitely think that manual is kind of, I guess, is the focus point of how, you know, how bizarre this all is, how deeply embedded things are, but also kind of how normal it it all felt to them until they were caught, I guess, or until they were found out. Yeah, and it's a real reflection, I think, of the culture of that kind of old boys network of chumminess and the way they look at their role out there when they're undercover. I think you can eat the tone of it, everything just oozes the sort of culture that you can imagine was going on within that unit doesn't it yeah yeah absolutely and so what did obviously we follow all these women throughout and and you tell their stories beautifully what did they think about the the finished product i guess they've all obviously listened to it and they're all kind of or some of them are uh, still involved in that world now from the other side so helping others that have have gone through similar ordeals what were the women's thoughts on your sort of end product well that was actually a really nice part of it and I think I was slightly wary that I if, of doing the story justice and I know a lot of them because their story is like their most intimate lives were invaded and kind of shown to the police they're very nervous of putting themselves out there and having someone tell their story and not being in control of it so it was a big uh, leap of faith for them to to let us do that and to put the podcast together but actually they were all really pleased with it which I'm very happy about Lisa said something which I found very moving she said that sometimes when she meets new people it can be exhausting to have to go through the whole story again and to you know every twist and turn and people are fascinated but it's it's really grueling for her to go through it but she's really pleased that now when she meets a new person, she can give them this podcast and say, listen to this, this is my story. And if they have any questions, they can come to her after. And so I think that shows that they were really happy with the way that we portrayed their stories. Yeah, I suppose in many ways, you've kind of created, you know, a short form autobiography for, for all seven of them. Yeah, exactly. And also, I think for um for Alison, who is hilarious um she talks about how people are just sick of hearing about it they're like oh what are you talking about your campaign again we don't care but there's people that she's known who find it hard to engage on the day-to-day basis of the story who then listen to this and were like oh my god i can't believe i didn't sort of engage with you on it as much as i should have done yeah interesting and did they like how did your involvement specifically with these women come about initially was it all through the inquiry and then you sort of backtrack from there or did did some of them did some of them come forward initially and, and then you found some others through the inquiry so i had done quite a lot of reporting on like women's issues and court cases involving women and through reporting on the case of sally challen who killed her husband and then was um, had her murder conviction overturned because on grounds that he was abusive her lawyer harriet wistrich represents the women in the podcast and it was through her that I first got in touch with a couple of the women and then it was a process of being introduced to one by one to other women and seeing who would be comfortable getting involved with the podcast and who wanted to be involved so it sort of came about quite naturally from there and then there are other women who are separate to 
the campaign group that they're part of who I spoke to as well some who haven't made it into this series but you never know there could be a bonus episode <laughs> yeah I'm sure you've got uh, well I guess that leads me kind of nicely on to ask you I guess the production behind it all was quite uh, all things considered was quite tight really you've got I suppose I think it's eight episodes which are all kind of between 25 and 45 minutes kind of varies throughout how much material do you think you'd you left out for this series were there moments that you were sure needed to be heard that just didn't make the cut or did, do you felt like you used the best of what you got for the for the eight episodes there was quite a lot of cutting and that was in the end we decided to make episode seven two parts because there was so much more to say and I was quite determined that I wanted to say it all so we managed to convince the editor Theo Leludis to let us have two parts which I was very re- grateful for but um, yeah, there, so there's quite a lot. I mean, we interviewed three of the women for seven hours each. So there's a lot about their stories, even having told it across seven parts that, that we couldn't fit in. And then there was also a lot from Neil Woods and David Tucker as well, which we just couldn't get in there because we had to trim it down because we wanted to balance it between getting all the information in there, but also making it listenable and wanting to keep people going to the end of the episode and on to the next episode and we thought about that a lot of like do we really need to have this scene or is it better to be more concise yeah definitely and I suppose there's like you say there's probably a room for one maybe two bonus episodes you can you can add on to the end with some of the extra material you've got yeah I think that's another thing there's lots of um, tentacles of this story like the families of the children whose names were used the dead children whose names were used by police officers or um, trade unionists who have been blacklisted I've actually got a feature out tomorrow on Ricky Tomlinson the actor from the royal family who had a police file opened on him in the 70s by an undercover unit so there's so much more out there that you you could go into but we sort of focused on the women because I think we felt that their story hadn't really been told in full in this way before and we wanted to focus on that but yeah there is so much more to say and so focusing on I guess you a bit more now as a as a creator where did it all start for you sort of what's your I suppose career path is a boring way of putting it but what's the beginning of your journey leading to where you are in your role now For people interested, you know, where did you, was it from, you know, the interest in this sort of thing started at university? Were you freelancer? Have you always worked in in journalism? What's your sort of, I guess, your history um, leading to where you are for people that would be interested? So I I, I studied journalism at Columbia for a master's, which was in 2014, 2015, which was actually the year that Serial came out as well. So that was, <laughs> that was released as we were all at journalism school, having a lot of discussions about the future of media, if, you know, budgets were just being slashed, newsrooms were firing people would there ever be appetite and budget for that sort of thing again? And then I think Serial was a first moment of looking at a whole new form of storytelling um, that got everybody very excited. And we had, they came and spoke to us at Columbia as well. So it was, it was definitely a kind of inspirational moment. What was it after university for you? So then I, the, my first internship was in New York at a publication called The Atavist Magazine, A-T-A-V-I-S-T not activist and they publish one long form piece a month so it's not really like anything we have in the UK these were like 30,000 words almost journalistic novellas and with each story they spend a lot of time working out how to tell that story 
what video and pictures you'd have to go through it and really designing it in a really beautiful way inspired by the New York Times' Snowfall piece and they also did a podcast to go with each story where the journalists would come into studio and read their story out loud so I helped in producing those a bit so that really cemented to me that this long-form storytelling was what I wanted to do but then I came back to the UK and I worked at Wired magazine before going to the Telegraph and I think in the UK that it's a really nascent community that are passionate about long form and they don't necessarily have the budgets for it and the time. So it's been quite a slow process of getting to the point where I've managed to convince editors that they should let us tell stories in this way. Yes, I suppose for you, you've kind of, I guess, almost gone, not backwards yourself, but in you've come from working in the States where podcasting is significantly larger and has been going a lot longer than it has here seeing the full effect of that within a big publication to then coming back over to the UK where things, you know, have kind of only started going strong in the last, I guess, couple of years, really. Although podcasts have been around for, I think, over a decade, if not more. Yeah, and I think we're about to see a big kind of explosion in narrative podcasts in the UK. But we are, as you say, like five years or so behind the US, I think, where it's only just started to trickle through. And now everyone's going, oh, we really should be doing this. But I did do a little bit of podcasting at Wired magazine as well, actually. But that was more just standing up in the cupboard and discussing the tech stories of the week. <laughs> and so for The Telegraph, was your was Bed of Lies a sort of realisation that there's a real hunger for this long-form narrative content in audio form or were they kind of aware of that and they were confident in your, in your idea to begin with so i think the podcast team certainly have known for a while that this is the direction they wanted to go in and the telegraph did a podcast called crossfire at the beginning of last year which was about the trump russia scandal and was a bit more of a narrative of kind of the connections between the trump russia scandal and the uk but they've been wanting to do a story like this that was a really in-depth strong narrative one and it just kind of so happened that i'm really interested in it and so we had a conversation with the podcast editor and went to her with a few different ideas and she was like that's the one we should go for and i think since it has definitely shown a lot of people across the newsroom the value of this kind of journalism where they wouldn't have necessarily thought it was something we could have done in the past. So what was your, I guess we've already mentioned some of your long form pieces overseas, but what was, was there, were there any other inspirations behind Bed of Lies? It does kind of follow, I suppose, it's quite easy to compare it to Serial in the sense that it's a, you know, a true crime-esque in many ways uh, narrative piece that has that interactive kind of online element to go with it. But were there any other inspirations behind the behind the project? I think I've sort of listened to every big narrative series of the last few years as they've come out. So definitely Dirty John was quite an inspiration as well. Obviously, that's about lies in a relationship and is this man who he says he is and sort of unpicking that. So that was quite an inspiration. And then just throughout lockdown, I've been listening to a lot of podcasts as I was making this. So this year, I've really loved Wind of Change. That was a big one. The music in that is great and the storytelling is amazing. I don't think that I necessarily listened to anything and thought, yes, this is a direct inspiration, but just over the years, I guess, of absorbing podcast series. So I did go back and re-listen to some of dirty john when we were writing just because that has quite strong connections but lots of podcasts about lies and whether you're being someone is being lied to as well so there was the shrink next door and that's all about manipulation and how someone's therapist ends up sort of manipulating into them into handing over all their money to them which is a fascinating one that idea of the psychology of lies 
And yeah, I think over the years, just absorbing everything from the BBC's Intrigue series to S-Town and those ones that came off of the serial franchise as well. But now there are so many, I feel like there's a different one each week. Have you listened to The Dropout by ABC News about Elizabeth Holmes? I haven't actually listened to that one yet, but it is on my list of one that I really should listen to because everyone says it's really good. Yeah, that's if I'm to recommend anything to you, not that it's my favourite, but I think uh, in the sort of true crime, all about lies genre, uh, I think that's a really good one that you'd you'd enjoy. It's just the most unbelievably bizarre story. Again, I was completely unaware of of her and the company uh, before going into it. But yeah, as a a lie-themed podcast, that's probably up there. Yeah, and having written about tech in the past as well, I do know the story vaguely, but I need to listen to the series. Definitely. I think there was a ton of like spin-off Netflix projects coming off of it that haven't, I don't think any of them have come to fruition yet, but you know, the media, the wider TV and film industry were jumping over it after it did so well. Yeah, I can imagine. I think there is one thing I did sort of really listened out a lot of true crime podcasts of people going missing like girls having vanished people being killed the in the dark series in the us are incredible for actually turning something around in terms of like finding out new evidence and like one of their stories got a case all the way to the supreme court in america so madeline barron's reporting and just is just incredible but we were quite realistic that we in terms of the time we could spend reporting that idea of going and living in a community for two years and investigating something and finding completely new evidence that changed everyone's perspective wasn't really going to be within you know the time constraints that I could have as a feature writer so that was also why we went for this story over a sort of cold case murder partly because we wanted to do something different but also because you don't, we didn't want to do something that was a, like a shaggy dog story where we just didn't get to any ending. Yeah, of course. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It does have a very sort of, I suppose, apart from the inquiry and, and the legal proceedings, it does have quite a, a, a firm beginning, middle and end. Which I think there have been a few of those series where it's told week by week and some weeks they've not really investigated anything new. So there's nothing really new to say, but they've tied themselves into doing a new episode that week. Whereas this is a bit more kind of, we know going into writing everything we've got and how you're going to put that together. Yeah, I can imagine that maybe makes things a little bit easier too, knowing that you have your your story in front of you and and how you're going to craft it. It it makes things perhaps slightly easier than a story that's ever evolving. You need to find new content for perhaps weekly or fortnightly. Yeah, I couldn't imagine having to, I mean, we were still in a process of having to write episodes week on week but we at least knew everything that we had for those episodes so we could plan I can't imagine yeah scrabbling around with having to find something new for an episode for a new week I think that would be quite stressful absolutely and so I guess finally I kind of we and we've kind of touched on it but I am interested in knowing broadly what the production process is like at the Telegraph so I guess sort of starting at the the pitching process and working its way through the production sort of hierarchy you have there. How do things, how quickly do things form there? You know, the time it took between you coming with the story all the way to, you know, first recording. 
So it's quite a small team, which is actually good because it means that you can get things going quite quickly without too much bureaucracy. I know in the early days of the pandemic, they got the coronavirus podcast up and running within about 24 hours. Mine was a bit longer than that. But when you're putting this much time into one story, you want to make sure you've chosen the right story. So I came up with about five ideas or so and then ran through them with the podcast editor, Theo, and she joined some calls with me and we with some of the people that we might interview and kind of she helped in a bit of the development and picking the right story and then after you know from the beginning though she was very keen on this undercover story and so it was about making sure the women would be up for it and really we were then kind of on board with this story quite quickly so yeah it's not there's not too slow a process which is good the podcast team is quite small so then it was a case of hiring an external producer and we found Sarah actually came through one of the women because she's good friends with one of the women which didn't affect the journalistic integrity in in any way but it just helped with the sort of trust issues that were there for some of them. Oh interesting that's brilliant it's it's interesting to see how I guess these new it's all new media for, for most people but it's interesting to see how the production process works you know coming from that traditional online news kind of uh, angle how they how they choose to approach it yeah i think it's quite good because it's quite bottom up so reporters can coming forward with ideas from the stories they've been working on and pitching them and saying you know there's more to be done here how can we do it what sort of story can we tell and then the podcast team sort of quite up for making it work which is nice rather than it being sort of a top-down approach or just one that involves a lot of hoops to jump through and now that Bed of Lies is finished, is there another project that's in the pipeline for you in terms of podcasting? Are you started to work on anything uh, new yet? Is that is that what you're looking towards? We've got a lot of ideas on the table, but nothing underway just yet. But I am hoping that we can do another series. I know that they're keen to get another one going. So yeah, we've just got to do a bit more development, decide which idea to go for. That sounds brilliant. And where's the best place if people want to keep a keep a keen eye on your work? Where's the best place people can find you? Well, um, they can follow me on Twitter at CJ McGugan. I'm not going to spell that out, but hopefully it will be in the show notes. Yeah, absolutely. We'll link that below. And also on the Telegraph. And do subscribe to the Bed of Lies feed as well, because anything new might be teased in there as well. Brilliant. Well, Cara, thank you so much for sort of going into detail on Bed of Lies today. I really appreciate you joining me. Thank you very much, Alex. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed episode one. As Cara mentioned, you can find her social links in the show notes for this episode. And if you haven't already, do go and listen to Bed of Lies. I'll put a link for that show in the description as well. If you enjoyed this episode, it would be great if you could leave me a review or at the very least follow this show so you'll be the first to see new episodes. I'll leave my social links in the notes as well. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the episode and any suggestions for other creators that I should talk to or maybe you're one yourself. I've got a few already lined up so hopefully it won't be long until you hear from me again. 